Greetings and salutations. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Funky Vibes Podcast. I am your host, Brother Glenn Talker, aka DJ Funky T, aka Mr. Glenn Talker, and according to my wife, go do the dishes. Then you know what? And if you're married, then you definitely know what I'm talking about. All right. Today, I have once again we're gonna try this again because I'm, I'm sad to say that I messed up the first recording but I have my very good friend dear brother fraternity brother brother Moses Gomez with me today now if you have never met this man this man is truly an American hero you know growing up I used to hear the theme song to G.I. Joe but this man epitomizes everything that, to me, what a hero should be. He epitomizes, to me, everything that a Freemason should be. He epitomizes, to me, everything that a brother and a good person should be. We all know the story about what happened September 11th to the World Trade Center. Well, for some of us, we only got to witness it on CNN or other news channels or we relive it on YouTube. This gentleman has a first-hand experience of that day. This man has him, his whole crew responded that day. So with those few words, I'd like to hand it over to my very good brother, Moses Gomez. Mr. M- Gomez, brother Gomez, welcome to the Funk E-Vibes podcast. Good morning, brother Glenn. Always a pleasure being here with you and glad I'm able to share my story today with your listeners on your program. Always a pleasure, brother. Thank you, brother Mo. Um, I know you're busy. I know you just knocked off from work as well, so we're going to get right to the point. Um, 9-11. Um, can you t- give us a, a brief history of what happened? Just touch on briefly, briefly what happened that day before we get into the meat and potatoes. Well, I, again, I'm Moses Gomez. I work for the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, uh, stationed in the New York City area. And we operate and own the World Trade Center complex, along with many other infrastructures, uh, bridges, tunnels, and airports in the New York City tri-state area. I've been here for 33 years, and I was stationed at the Holland Tunnel, which is a vehicular tunnel used to move traffic from Jersey, New Jersey to New York on both occasions, uh, not just 9-11, but the 93 attack also, which sometimes is overshadowed by the 9-11 attack. But we did occur, we did have two terrorist attacks. Uh, one was 93, and the other one was 9-11. The first one wasn't as major and as big as the second one, but Nevertheless, uh, our unit and our individuals with me uh, responded to both attacks. So I was uh, witnessed and participated in both of the terrorist attacks on American soil on those two days. Now, take us through your morning routine. 
that morning. I mean, you wake up out of bed, eating breakfast. What's the last thing you expected that day? Uh, well, it definitely was. Ex- the last thing I wasn't expecting <laughs> was not to come home for a couple of days. That's for sure. Uh, that was something that, you know, we, uh, by the time I was able to get home here, it was probably about three days. So uh, it was a typical morning, you know, regular rush hour, get up early, get to work. Uh, we start the shift at six o'clock. Uh, we, we go in, we have roll call, we assign our positions and we respond to our posts and, and, and proceed the day's uh, chores. And most of what I do is the emergency service end of it. So if there's anything that our patrolmen on the road cannot handle, then they call our unit. So it could be uh, something as simple as a stray dog, a disabled vehicle, a fire, uh, a pregnant woman having delivering a baby, which <laughs> has happened a few times. So uh, there's a wide scope of our of our range of work that we do. Uh, now that morning, we received a call over the air that a plane had struck uh, one of the towers. Now, normally, uh, it's not out of the ordinary because planes have hit buildings in New York City. So although it is a tragic event, we did not look at or view it, or at least I didn't, as a terrorist attack. We just figured, you know, even though it was a clear day, uh, we just assumed plane got, you know, Mis- misguided or pilot error and somehow collided with the towers. They are tall. They stand a quarter of a mile high. So, and they are in very close proximity to the flight plan and the flight routes into three major airports in that area. So, you know, we, we responded again as we did. Now, most of us who responded uh, had been there eight years previous for the first attack. So it was kind of a repeat scenario, different attack, but same type of mission. Try to evacuate as many people and assist those who were injured and trying to get them down. Uh, and again, uh, it was very difficult because the, the plane hit, struck the building quite high above, uh, and it, it was really no access to the floors where the planes hit. I mean, the plane really did substantial structural damage to the building, preventing anyone from coming down from those floors and preventing rescuers from getting up into those higher floors. Uh, not to mention the intense heat and fire uh, from the jet fuel, uh, which burns quite hot in those days. So it began as a regular day, and then we quickly moved into uh, a rescue, a evacuation type, try to get down there and remove as many people as possible safely from the building, uh, get the medical attention if needed, uh, and try to, again, assess and perhaps begin attacking the fire as, as the New York City firemen arrived and everybody prepared to gain entry and try to get to those levels and see what they can actually do. But again, it was a very uh, unexpected day and it's not something that you see. Uh, and it made it that much worse when about 16 minutes later, the second plane hits. Uh, and that's when you really got the idea that something was going on here. And of course, then we were getting reports from all over the country and around the world, uh, other bridges and other major locations, the Pentagon and the White House. I mean, the news was chaotic. It was coming in very chaotically. Uh, we didn't know what was going on. So at, at that point, we realized this was no longer an accident or a pilot error, but that this was some sort of terrorist attack. And the fact that we were getting information from multiple sources that many places around the United States were getting hit simultaneously. So uh, again, the, the, unfortunately, thank God, we only had uh, four hit attacks. It was two at the World Trade, one at the Pentagon, and the other one crash landed in a cornfield outside of Pittsburgh in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. So Again, those were the confirmed, but you know how how news gets spread quickly. It's uh, in the beginning we didn't know what was going on. We had no idea who was getting hit, 
who was hitting us, why were they being hit, how many locations were being hit. Uh, and now I'm not dealing with one building, but I'm dealing with two buildings where evacuations had to proceed. And you're talking, Brother Glenn, that's a buildings hold about 25,000 people each building. So it's an enormous amount of tasks trying to bring that many people down safely to the ground floor. Panic sets in, uh, building filled up with smoke. Uh, we lost a lot of electricity. We lost a lot of lighting. Uh, we lost a lot of uh, ventilation. So the, you know, dealing with the smoke, the heat, the darkness, the chaotic people panicking, uh, that was, it was chaotic that day, not to say the least. And then to think that 16 minutes later, or 15 minutes later, the next plane hits, uh, and, and, you know, Feeling that and witnessing that is very horrific, knowing that now you're not dealing with one building, but now you're dealing with two uh, attacks there. And then how many more were coming? I mean, were there other buildings? Was the Empire State Building going to be hit? Were there other locations within the New York City area that were going to get hit? So uh, it felt very vulnerable. You know, we all felt very vulnerable uh, for, for a quick moment. We realized that, you know, anything, we, we did not have control of the situation. And that's uh, something that a rescuer... Uh, never wants to face. We want to be able to have control of the scenario, assess the situation, and be able to effectively assist and, and engage. Uh, but for those uh, for that short time there, it felt uh, like we were very vulnerable, very uh, you know unsecure, and we just didn't know what was going on. We just really had no knowledge. How many people were in your crew? Uh, the Holland Tunnel, we had probably this. Probably about 15 that morning uh, that work in the emergency garage. Of course, we have other Port Authority employees. It's a big organization. At that time, we had probably about 11,000 people working for the Port Authority in various positions and jobs. Uh, but our crew had about 15 or so that morning. Uh, usually, the, the, the weekdays uh, have a little bit more than the weekend. So we probably had about 15 or so. And then they closed the hollow tunnel uh, because it became a lifeline. <clears throat> We had done that the first attack where, because the proximity of the Holland Tunnel to the World Trade Center, it made it a lifeline for supplies to be brought into the New York City area and driven down to the World Trade area. So again, the Holland Tunnel was closed and it was only for emergency vehicles only and for emergency supplies that were being transported down uh, through the Holland Tunnel down to the World Trade Center site. So we remained closed, I think for about a little over two months, we remained closed while we for bringing in equipment and supplies and, 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 and the essential items we needed to continue operating. Uh, first is an evacuation, uh, rescue, uh, and then finally, you know, cleaning up the World Trade Center site. So, like, what exactly are you, were you guys specialties? I mean, is, um, were you primarily EMS? Were you primarily firefighters? What, what are you exactly? We're a little bit of everything. We're called emergency <laughs> service unit. So we're a little bit of everything. Uh, I can drive a a, tow, a wrecker, a tow truck. I can drive a fire truck. I can uh, respond to medical emergencies, any type of emergency that's out of the ordinary. Uh, that's what we're trained in. So uh, we do have a little bit of training in many different fields. Uh, so we're a little bit different than most organizations. Most organizations are split up into medical, fire, or police. The Port Authority does it all in one headshot. So we, we do it all encompass on the public safety. So we're a little bit, we're a little bit of everything in, in what we do, and we get trained in many different aspects in many fields. Uh, weapons of mass destruction. We get trained in uh, structural firefighting. We get trained in many advanced medical procedures. Uh, so again, it's a vast array uh, of what we do. Uh, we get trained in hazardous materials, incident command response, 
So we have a vast training, especially in my 33-year career. We've had a, an enormous amount of training under our belt to be able to handle whatever comes up in our facilities so we don't really need to deal with outside agencies assisting. Of course, we always uh, may need their assistance uh, because of manpower, but we're pretty much able to, our crew is able to handle quite, I mean, as sometimes where I've had to jump into a, a salt spreader and, and the salty roadway because of, uh, uh, of icing or, or freezing rain or snow until the emergency, until maintenance can get there. So again, we're, we're, we're a unique trained group of individuals that are trained in multiple multitasking and multiple uh, jobs throughout the, the Port Authority so that we can provide that assistance there uh, because the, the, the real purpose is to keep the facilities open. And that's our vital uh, vital lifeline. That some of these highways and bridges are a lifeline to New York City. So if we have to wait because of some particular incident for another crew to come in from outside, then it it, it kind of slows the traffic down and kind of really puts a, a backlog on our infrastructure and our the, uh, the motorized public. So that's why we kind of trained in many different aspects so that we can get out there and begin doing some of the work until we get extra help to arrive on the scene. Gotcha, gotcha. Now, for clarity, you said 25,000 people per building or 2,500? Yeah, 20, no, 25,000 per building was wow. the estimated that each building worked. Yeah. Uh, and remember, the World Trade was made up of seven buildings. So we owned and operated 16 acres and there were seven buildings on those acres. So all total combined, I'm sure there was probably 60, 70,000 people working in all the buildings because we had... Uh, Building seven was 47 stories. Uh, so that had, you know, I'm sure several thousand people working in it as well. So it was, it was a, and you also got to keep in mind that the World Trade Center hub is a transportation hub that links up with other trains underneath, uh, on the ground in the subway system of New York City. And an estimated quarter of a million people use that transportation hub going through or coming to work or leaving work or coming into New York City, leaving New York City or traveling to another location. It's a major destination hub. Uh, so at any given time throughout the day, you have thousands of people crisscrossing through our facility, not really working there, but using our facility to get to another location. So they might go to an airport, might go to the, you know, somebody might come from New Jersey to go to the World Trade to take a, a train up to the Penn Station to take a rail. Uh, so again, it's a, it's a real vital hub. It's one of the largest hubs uh, in New York City where many subways and trains meet together. And from there, you can take Junction. I said, if you can get to the World Trade Center, you can get to anywhere in the country or anywhere in the world because you can take a train to the airport, you can take a train to one of the uh, subway to a train station, or you can take a subway to the bus station. So you can either travel across the train, bus, or air anywhere around the world. So it's a very important, vital link of our transportation up in New York City. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay. You said from the first plane hit, you thought it was just a regular, basically another regular day with playing hitting the building. Um, so you get to the building. Um, can you describe what it was like when you entered the building and smoke and everything on the stairway? Well, the the bottom <laughs> levels in the lobby weren't too bad. I mean, it was a lot of uh, a lot of chaos people running in and out, people running the building, a lot of first responders getting into the building. Uh, but we really didn't encounter any smoke or any heat like that because, again, the airplane hit high above in the uh, one plane that hit in the, in the 60s 
you know, in the 60th floor level and the other one hit up a little bit higher in the 70s and 80s. So again, we're talking about a large building. So down on the ground floor, you didn't really feel that. Uh, what you did uh, see was a lot of debris uh, flying around the air, people breaking windows uh, to try to gain access or maybe get a breath of fresh air uh, in those floors that were impacted by the planes or the floors that were on fire. So you really had to be careful uh, walking around, not just inside the building, but preferably outside because they didn't, uh, you were getting showered by glass. You know, the, the, the windows in the World Trade Center did not open. Uh, they were very thick glass. So people were breaking the glass to try to uh, get that breath of fresh air or hoping they get some somebody to let them know that they're trapped and, get, and be rescued. So we were getting showered by uh, all that falling glass and debris. Uh, the, there was items that were falling out the windows and out the floors that were impacted uh, that were on fire. So the ground floor, the, the street level was a little bit precarious and dangerous. The other sad part is that it was a lot of people who were trapped in the building, uh, in the, especially in the areas where the fires were very intense and were actually leaping out of the window, they were jumping out of the window uh, for, for what we can assess was the lesser of the two evils. Instead of sitting there burning alive, uh, I know I'm going to die. Let me just take just this jump. lapse, yeah. just jump and get it over with, and it's done. Yeah. Uh, so you really had to be careful, not just with the falling debris, but possibly getting hit or killed by a human being, uh, committing that last act of of of, uh, of ending their life instead of burning alive. So again, getting hit by a 150 pound person traveling at 100 miles an hour yeah. uh, would instantly kill you. So uh, it was very very dangerous. And then when the second plane hit, yeah, then. I mean, what came out of the back of that building was horrific. Yeah. You know, all that debris, all that fuel igniting, uh, causing a lot of debris to fall out the window, a lot of the airplane parts and airplane structure. You know, like the, I think the uh, front landing gear landed about two blocks away. Wow. So again, you had to really be careful walking in and around the perimeter, constantly looking up to make sure uh, you were not in harm's way. Wow. So, um, as you go in, you're helping people down the steps. Um, what kind of injuries are you seeing as you bring people down? The, the see the, the the first one injuries were mostly there was very few fatalities, and most of the injuries were smoke inhalation uh, and injuries due to panic. As you know, Glenn, people running, stumbling, trying to get out of the building. Uh, you think that coming down, ascending is easy. Uh, but when you're 60, 70 stories up in the air, coming down these dark stairwells, filling up with smoke and the panic and the heat, and uh, that tends to put a lot of uh, stress on people. Uh, so in the beginning, there were people that were tripping over themselves, stumbling, it could have been a, a sprained ankles or twisting ankles or falling down, uh, scraping themselves or hurting themselves. So we really weren't seeing major injuries because. Uh, it was almost like a buffer. Those who were actually caught above the impact floors were the ones that were actually hurt or killed, but they weren't able. They weren't able to make their way down. So it wasn't like uh, a lot of people were massively injured making their way down. Uh, I mean, several did make their way down, but a lot of it was just chaos. It was just people panicking, people running. Uh, if you can imagine, you know, a, a, you know, a bomb going off in a subway or something, and we're in a car explosion, and you just see people scattering and running uh, again the, the, you know injuries dealing with uh, falling debris maybe somebody got hit in the head with a you know, with a piece of glass or 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 
or struck something on their way down. So there was a lot of injuries as the first one. The first one was mainly smoke inhalation. People were uh, tripping over themselves, people falling down the stairs, uh, people had heart problems or asthmatic problems, uh, you know, were suffering uh, because of the not being able to breathe properly. Uh, so that was kind of the issues in the beginning. And uh, this one here kind of was the same way, except that there were a little, the injuries were a little bit more. And of course, the deaths were a lot more, especially. But uh, it was two part. It was those who were killed when the impact and then those who were killed when the buildings collapsed. So there was two different actual uh, forms that people uh, people perished. So there was those that were on those floors, unfortunately, that might have been working in that office when the plane hit. They were killed instantly. Those on the plane that were killed instantly. and then those who were trapped in the building as the building collapsed, they had no way out. So they perished later on uh, as a secondary form of attack, which meant that the building collapsed under its own weight and they were killed because of the building falling. So, Were you in the building when um, the second plane hit? We were staging outside when we uh, were in the building. We had just gotten out there. So again, when the first one hit, uh, by the time we mobilized, we closed the Holland Tunnel. Many of us uh, jumped in our vehicles and went down there. And we were getting down there, mobilizing. We were behind the building, uh, so we couldn't see the Hudson River skyline, uh, but we heard uh, a plane. We heard the the, the the engines roaring in the sky. But again, it, we had no idea it was going to the second plane was going to hit until it actually came down the Hudson River, made the left hand turn, and banked into the building, striking the uh, the, the, the uh, I would say is the western side of the building, and the plane came through on the other side of the building. So. Uh, you know, that actually cut through the building. So it actually penetrated the entire building and came out the other side. An incredible blast of, of fire and smoke came out the other side. Uh, of course, all the falling debris, uh, all the uh, the fuel that was in the uh, in the jet plane, was, it was fully fueled, so it had just yeah. taken off, so it was yeah. completely filled with fuel. Yeah. Uh, that was igniting. And, you know, jet fuel is a very volatile fuel. It's a very, uh, it burns at a high rate and a high temperature rate. So it's not like your average uh, petrol fuel in your vehicle. It, it's it's more volatile and it, it's highly more combustible. So it's a, yeah. when it burns, it burns a lot hotter. Yes, yes, yes. All right. So you're inside the building bringing people down. Did you have any indication? Like, was there a rumbling or anything before the building? You knew the building was getting ready to collapse? One of the things I must say when the building started, the, the first one, might have been about an hour or so later when the first one, when the building came down. The building one was hit first, then building two. Building two collapsed first, then building one. Uh, I would say it felt more like an earthquake. Uh, again, you didn't notice it. We were on the north side of the building, so the south building was the one that was that started the collapse first. Uh, it was almost like slow motion. It, it didn't really, you didn't know what was going on for those first few seconds. Uh, but the ground started shaking. You felt the rumbling. Uh, and then it didn't fall, the building didn't collapse in a, in a traditional way of falling. Uh, it, it slowly pancaked on itself. So I, I would imagine as the first floor collapsed and gave way, that floor caused structure on the second floor to collapse. And as the floors pancaked on top of each other, it was just a, a domino effect where it just could not hold the weight of the succeeding floors and slowly imploded upon itself. So it wasn't, it wasn't like a building collapsed completely down. It's just started collapsing on itself. And of course, the World Trade Center is very unique because we didn't, the way the World Trade Center was built, it was built with the structure supporting the building was on the skin of the building. So the steel holding the building was on the outside. There was no columns inside the building. 
Uh, so the, the buildings, the floors just kind of collapsed on each other, leaving the steel structure abandoned and free to fall. So a lot of it just collapsed off the side, almost like a peeling a banana effect. But the, uh, most of us just ran. I mean, uh, we got notifications on the radio that the buildings were collapsing. Of course, uh, a lot of the emergency vehicles started using their sirens or their horns, uh, which is a telltale sign to evacuate or clear the area. Uh, so we just ran. We ran up north into a subway and uh, we ran down to a subway to protect ourselves because uh, we didn't know which way this was coming. Where was it going? How was it falling? Uh, and really, we weren't going to wait to find out. We were trying to gain and look for a secure place to hide. And that was uh, what we did. And ran down to a subway and, and found protection in a subway. Did you have any indications the um, second building was going to fall? That was, the second building started the same way, but now we were kind of uh, expecting it. So, you know, we, we didn't expect all of them to collapse, but when the first one collapsed, that was a surprise. And then, of course, now our, it, was, it was engraved in our mind that it could be, the possibility was there that the second one could collapse also, uh, which actually, you know, which actually did again. So we were a little bit more aware uh, of the first one, but I, I would believe that probably the first building, because it, nobody really expected the buildings to collapse. And I think that's what caught everybody by surprise. And that's what probably killed the bulk of the first responders and rescuers because they were in the building. Uh, they didn't know it was going to collapse. Uh, those that were around the building got caught. Uh, and I believe the same way where the second one collapsed, it probably those who were in the building, the rescuers, the first responders who didn't know it was going to collapse. By that time, it was too late to get out. There was just no way for them to get out. Uh, most of the surrounding buildings as far as we know, had been evacuated as well, but a lot of people were still in buildings next door because it didn't affect them. But many buildings were also damaged because of the collapse of these two buildings. If you know, just imagine uh, living in an area where the buildings are average, maybe 30 stories, 40 stories, 10, 15 stories, and you got to build two buildings that are 110 stories. Yes. When they come down, they're going to land and collapse and fall on other buildings. So it, they took... All total, eight buildings came down, including a Greek Orthodox church that was completely destroyed oh, wow. as well. And you say building seven collapsed as well? That was correct? Building seven was in front, across the street from building one. Mm -hmm. uh, and when building one came down, it strafed building seven. So it really did major structural damage to the front of the building, gotcha. uh, facing the south side of the building. Mm -hmm. That one probably collapsed under its own weight late in the afternoon, around four o'clock, if I remember. Yes. Uh, yes, I had parked my vehicle not far from there, uh, and it. Uh, but the building was evacuated. Everybody was cleared out. Yeah, we realized that you know this it was impending. Sooner or later, it was going to come down. So that was by now we had realized that you know this this was a possibility, and then now we were preparing for the for the possible collapse of this building. So so building uh, seven just, was fully evacuated, basically. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, we can't say for sure. Uh, you know how many might have been trapped in there, or killed, or still in the building, but. Yeah. For the most part, uh, we had not, you know, we kind of realized now that this building was fully engulfed in flames. It was out of control. And that eventually the possibility could be that this building could collapse as well. So by that time, we tried to keep people out of the way and just let the buildings collapse on their own weight. Just sit back and wait for the for the final buildings to collapse. So it was it was touch and go. It was trying to go in, do a little rescue, a little recovery, get out, you know, and constantly keeping alert for a possible collapse of a building. There's a lot of buildings surrounding the World Trade Center were damaged significantly, uh, you know, quite, you know, because of the falling debris from the two towers. So 
you know, there was a lot of hotels in the area. There was a lot of financial buildings in the area Mm -hmm. that were, you know, damaged, you know, extremely damaged. I mean, there's some buildings that had huge pieces of steel just speared into the buildings and just, just shot into the building. And then, you know, so again, uh, could those possibly collapse? Sure. So we had to make sure that evacuate as many as we can and stay clear of the area until eventually, you know, it could be determined that it was safe to go in and begin to rescue. Now we went from evacuation to yeah. now rescue those who might've been trapped under the rubble and debris. Yes. 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 Okay. So buildings come down, dust clears. Now you're going, now everybody's rushing to, to find survivors. Um, can you describe that scene, that first initial, as you're walking up to ground zero, you're walking up to the site, the dust is still in the air. Uh, can you describe that as you're walking towards? I tell you, Brother Glenn, it was like being on a foreign planet. It was being, uh, it's almost, almost like uh, watching these uh, doomsday movies where you know, you're walking almost like Planet of the Apes where you're walking through a burnt out shell of a city. Yeah, uh, it, everything was covered in that light gray dust. Uh, sometimes you were walking on it, you know, ankle high, knee high through the dust <laughs> and debris, uh, and then trying to maneuver through all this mangled steel, uh, you know, twisted bent steel, millions of tons of steel collapsed on itself. Uh, you know, it was it was a very eerie, eerie, somber feeling. It, it looked like you were on a distant planet, or or, or something out of a uh, Armageddon movie. You know where or you know some sort of a, uh, atomic explosion detonated, and uh, and for a mi- quick moment, when you when you look at the photos from the two atomic bombs, World War II, Nagasaki and Hiroshima, and you see the burnt out buildings and the shells of the buildings and the collapse of the, but it kind of you know later on when you when you picture this, that's what kind of impression it gave you, like you were walking through a burnt out rubble of the city. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's a city that never sleeps. It's a very busy city, a very vibrant, active city, and. Yes. For it to come to a complete halt, a com- you know, a complete shutdown, uh, yeah. uh, especially at night. Working at night was very eerie. Most of my time uh, after the for first, not the first couple of days, but then on, was working uh, at night. Uh, and walking around at night was really eerie because it was a deafening silence. Yeah, you didn't hear the honking of the horns and people were hustling and bustling. Everything was still silent. There was no signs of life. Uh, it was just uh, just a, a very eerie eerie feeling of, of of seeing of walking around there and then seeing the mass damage and catastrophe that was in front of us like, you know just trying to think how are we even going to get people out of here if they are trapped under here i mean it's just impossible to move all this this debris by hand i mean we tried first couple first couple of days all we did was do bucket brigades where you know we pass the bucket up to the to the top of the line and fill it in and bring it back and hopefully be able to hear and make our way in and, and these and, and little uh, creeks and, 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 and crevices that were opened up and uh, try to make our way into these holes and hopefully hear somebody screaming or yelling, uh, be able to find someone trapped. Unfortunately, we didn't find too many trapped after the building. Yeah. I think it was maybe about 20 or so were actually pulled out of the rubble. Yeah. But after Friday, that Friday after the attacks, uh, pretty much everybody who had been uh rescued out of the pile. That was, that was about it. We really didn't find too many after that. So it wasn't a lot of trapped people because it was either you made it or you didn't make it. Yeah. If you if, the, if you were in the building and it collapsed, uh, you didn't make it. I mean, it was just very few that actually made it. So 
Uh, and that was a difference between the first and the second. The first, it was many injuries, light injuries, but there were many people that survived uh, helping them. And actually, we had prepared in those eight years, we had prepared for a similar type of terrorist attack. And the funny, the, the interesting thing is that many of our facilities became triage centers okay. so that they were able to accommodate the overflow of injured victims going to the hospitals yeah. so that we'd be able to take the overflow. Mm-hmm. And many of these places uh, never received anybody, which kind of gave you that eerie effect that if you didn't make it out of the building before it collapsed, uh, you didn't make it. You didn't make it. You didn't make it. Wow. Uh, Liberty State Park, which was the home of the Statue of Liberty right across the river, yeah. because of the mass expanse, that had become a massive triage center where they had hundreds or thousands of beds ready to, you know, they were ready. We were expecting many injuries and many of these places laid empty. They just, nobody showed up because it was not, you know, it was very few that made it out when the buildings collapsed. And that was the sad part. That's when you kind of realized the magnitude of what we, what had just happened. Yeah. That's what I can imagine. That's crazy. Um, Now, members of your crew, how many entered the building with you? Well, just about everybody from the Holland Tunnel went. Uh, so, I mean, including uh, maintenance personnel, all Port Authority employees went down there. So there was probably uh, several hundred of us down here. And, of course, we started getting help from all the other agencies in New York City, police, fire, EMS, uh, everybody who can pitch in, many of the uh, different uh, law enforcement agencies. You know, New York City has a lot of different agencies that work there. Mm-hmm. Many responders came from other jurisdictions, other cities across the state to help out. And eventually many came from around the country and around the world. Uh, not so much to really help, but just to show the support and solidarity uh, into in, in in unifying after what had happened. But uh, I mean, like again, at that time, I think we might've had about nine, 10,000, 11,000 employees. Uh, not all of them were working, uh, but again, we have different employees working different jobs within the Port Authority. Uh, so many of them uh, responded down and many of them were used in their capacities that they normally work in, but to assist us there. So we might've had welders, we might've had, uh, you know, structural mechanics. We had, you know, individuals who worked in the automotive division, people who worked in maintenance. So they were able to operate heavy equipment and, and uh, uh, you know, cutting, welding, cutting, torching and stuff like that. So everybody's, you know, general experience was used the best way we knew how and best way we can to help everybody. You know, it, it was, a, it was a, a, a nice sense of everybody pitching in together. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, uh, those that you knew personally, um, were there any casualties of people that you knew? That you... Yes, there was four from the Holland Tunnel, yes. especially that passed up, perished away. All total, 75 employees from Port Authority were killed. Yeah. All total. Uh, from Most of them were uh, from the emerge- police emergency service unit and those who work in the building. Uh, so there was a lot of we lost a lot of the hierarchy of the Port Authority because they would meet daily in the morning uh, up a flood on the uh, uh, restaurant, the w- windows of the world it was a restaurant up on top and they would yeah. uh, meet there to discuss the, the issues of the day and begin planning. And it was a kind of way to get the gate started. Many of them were caught up there, the executive director, uh, deputy director, the uh, uh, so director they, of public safety. So they were in the building. They were in the building. They were having, there was a lot oh, wow. of them having breakfast in the windows of the world, which was the very top of the building. Yeah. So oh, wow. uh, when, the, oh, wow. when the building, when the 
planes were struck, they were caught in there. So a lot of them, we lost a lot of the hierarchy of Port Authority. Uh, a lot of the World Trade Center employees who were working in the building uh, were killed. So uh, all total, 75 total we lost that day. The first one, we lost six. Uh, and the second attacks, we lost 75. Oh, wow. May they rest in peace. Um, definitely heroes. Definitely all heroes. Um um, yourself, others, um, do you have um, cases of PTSD from, from this? Not so much on my end. Uh, I, I do present this lecture in many places. I've had the privilege of presenting it in many countries around the world, uh, over 30 states here in the United States. I've done it over 300 times. So my 9-11 lecture is kind of a perspective of what I went through, what I saw, just one of thousands of stories, yeah. just, just one small story. Uh, I know I did it for our brethren in Bermuda yes. uh, back in 2016. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we did the uh, peppercorn ceremony. I presented it there. And I guess there is still people suffering from the injury. Not so much PS, uh, PS, the, uh, the, the, uh, the suffering of, of the emotion, but people are suffering from the cancer-causing agents that many of us ingested and breathed while down there. So there are many that are still dying today from those uh, cancer-causing agents uh, today, I think there's over 1,800 that have died from the effects of helping at Ground Zero. And it, it, it's kind of unwritten word that eventually more would have died from the effects of being exposed to those harmful uh, area of the World Trade Center than actually the terrorists did, which is kind of a, a real interesting thought that you think, you know, almost 3,000 perished. And that eventually over three, more than 3,000 will probably perish because of this disease and a lot of the workers now. So, you know, sometimes you'll come into work or in conversation, you hear somebody say, hey, you know, someone, brother, so-and-so passed away. You know, he had cancer and uh, he had their, you know, he had to leave medical restricted from work or, or get out three quarters medical leave or overtired and, you know, got, got sick and caught cancer. And so, again, every once in a while, a name pops up and you'll see a picture or a posting of somebody who passed away. And again, it's, it's a, to give you an idea how, how dramatic and how important this is, uh, when they built the, the World Trade Center again, and they built the memorial grounds, the museum to honor what happened on that day, a few years ago, they actually took a section of the memorial gardens and removed it and built a new memorial called the Glade Memorial. And that honors all of those individuals who responded to assist who have now perished because being exposed to the carcinogens and the harmful toxins in the air in that area. So uh, just to give you an idea how, how significant that is that they had to, they felt a need to honor those individuals, not just those who perished, but honor those who have perished in the 21 years since, and that are still perishing to this day. So again, it's something that we relive every year. It doesn't go away. Uh, it's hard to believe it's been 21 years already, but, uh, but again, it's it creeps up every once in a while, and you, you get a note, or you get somebody sends you a text message, or calls you, or you get a you see a a, a, a poster board and announcing the passing of so and so. So it's it still still hits home. One of the other things you're very passionate about, brother Moses, and I believe you're doing a current lecture on this, is um how masons, sorry masons were um, 
how they helped at the Underground Railroad. Can you give me, just touch on that for me, please? Sure, my brother. I'm very passionate about, uh, I'm very passionate about what Masonry has done in the past to better humanity and better ourselves, not just the core of brothers, but also humanity. And I think that's very important because uh, Masonry is always viewed as a tight secret society that takes care of itself. And I think that it's a high misconception that I think we have done more for the profane, for the average human, for the average person other than a Mason than we do for ourselves. And uh, the Underground Railroad is just one, uh, one of many different topics. And the Underground Railroad deals with uh, the the system of having freeing slaves from the South here in the United States and bringing them up into the North, uh, in the free Northern States or into Canada, we were completely free. Uh, of course, there was no train. Uh, many people all ask me and say, <laughs> you know, it wasn't really a train. I said, well, unfortunately, there was no train you picked up in uh, in Mississippi and next stop was New York and you were free. Uh, it was a so they did, So they didn't ride, so they did not ride Amtrak, correct? No, <laughs> there was no high-speed trains or Amtrak. It was, it was just a series of off-the-beaten-path roads uh, that conductors took, and conductors were individuals who were aiding slaves escape from the South, and they knew the lay of the land, and they were able to uh, have a, assist a slave from one location to the next point of safety and then hand them off to the next conductor, and that was conducted all the way until they made it into the northern state, depending where they were going, Detroit. New York, Philadelphia, Buffalo, or Canada. So, I mean, those many locations. But it was a system designed and created to help slaves escape from the South, bring them into the North and the free states, and eventually, if they wanted to go to Canada, to become free as well. Uh, and masonry, uh, you know, it's, it played a significant role, as they did in, in, in many uh, throughout the centuries. They've, they've always played a significant role uh, when it came to uh, people's independence, people's freedoms, uh, people's uh, the, the the common happiness and the good of all people, oppression, slavery, uh, and not just here. I mean, it happened everywhere. In South Africa, it happened in the Middle East, it happened in Europe, it happened in the Caribbean, South and Central America. Uh, so it's no stranger uh, to all the good that Masonry has done throughout our centuries uh, for the benefit of all mankind, not just ourselves. And Underground Railroad is just an epic part that happened uh, in the later early to mid-1800s to prior to the beginning of the Civil War and through the Civil War and kind of ended after the Civil War because slavery was abolished by then. But at its height, uh, it did very well. And and doing the research, which is very scarce because you got to keep in mind that what these what these uh, individuals working on this movement were doing was illegal. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to, to comprehend today that people were property. And it was legal. So if I was going to the South to free a slave, I was effectively going to the South and stealing someone's property, which means I could be arrested, I could be killed, I could be hurt, uh, I could be charged. And it's sad to comprehend, but there was, they treated slaves no different than how you would treat a car today. Someone you know, tried to hijack your car and, uh, and you got caught. And that's effectively what they were doing. You were stealing property. So it was very precarious. Uh, and it was very secretive because, of course, you couldn't brag what you were doing. You know, Masons couldn't walk around saying what they were doing because you were effectively breaking the law. You were you were literally committing a crime. So it had to be had to be kept quiet. Uh, not only that, but also for the protection of those working in that movement. You didn't want to be known as uh, you couldn't brag about what you were doing. I mean, we hear cases now, but 
And these are people who really weren't out, were exposed in the, in that aspect of the job they were doing, but weren't really getting notoriety for it or, or becoming famous until later on because it, it protected them. It was a way of protecting yourself so that nobody knew what you were doing. And Masons did the same thing. They, it wasn't something that you, uh, you know, you put the lodge of refreshment and then went out and, and wrote down, the secretary wrote down what you did that evening. You know, we helped two slaves escape because you're committing a crime. You're actually writing down something that could be used against you in a court of law. So, uh, but through investigations and research and, and, and whatnot, we've been able to pick apart and pick pieces here and there and how Masonry played a, played a pretty big hand in that. And that's, uh, it's amazing uh, what they actually did. Also, when you think about it, I mean, because as a Mason from up north, you actually you may be actually stealing property from a Mason, your fellow Mason bro- brother in the South. Oh, absolutely. Uh, brother Glenn, I've always said, uh, and I, when I do my talks, I always say this uh, towards the end. Freemasonry is a perfect institution made up of imperfect men. All men err. All men make mistakes. Freemasonry gives you the tools and the implements and sets you off on the right course. It's up to each individual to take those lessons, to take those allegorical stories, to take what Freemasonry has to offer and to do good with it. If you choose to do bad or good, that's up to you. But again, this institution allows you and you have the tools and benefits to do what is good. Many follow that route and unfortunately many follow the wrong path. Manga Evers, the great civil rights activist here in the South, uh, was killed in 1963 by a brother Mason. He shot him in the back, cold, uh, coming out of his car, walking into his home. Did he know he was a Mason? Uh, I don't know. I, I couldn't tell you that. But knowing Medgar Evers, Medgar Evers was a well-recognized individual. He was a leader in the NAACP. Uh, he was a leader in Mississippi. He was a, he was an upright standing Mason. He was very known. He was out in the public as a Mason. So again, here you have one brother killing another, only because this brother had a different pigmentation than the other brother. Uh, again, it's it's what you do with the craft that is what's important. And hopefully... Most do the right thing. And believe it or not, there were brothers who actually went down to the South, back to their home roots, and tried to convince others, including their own brethren, to stop what they were doing. Uh, there's a, I came across an article uh, by sheer mistake, and I actually spoke in the lodge down in, in, in Kentucky. I visited that lodge, and it was a brother there who was... Uh, goes by the name of James Galipsy Burney, and he actually was the son of a wealthy plantation owner, owned slaves, the whole, you know, southern plantation, uh, you know, effect. And his father sends him to Princeton here in New Jersey, a highly, uh, highly rated university, to become a lawyer and to become educated. And when he's here, his son develops an abolitionist cause movement. So he, he starts to associate himself with like-minded people, realizes that this is wrong, and when he returns back to his home state of Kentucky, his father invites him to become a Freemason and is in the same lodge that he belonged to, which is actually called Franklin Lodge Number 28 in Danville, Kentucky. And when his father dies, he now becomes his father's heir and he assumes his father's slaves and property and he sells his properties, frees the slaves uh, and pursues a lifelong mission to abolish slavery. One of the interesting things, in, now this guy created a political party. He ran for president, ran for vice president, 
very powerful man. But he creates, he, he writes this pamphlet, this oration, and he comes to his home lodge in Kentucky and knocks on the outer door, he gains permission, and then he addresses the brethren and the master on how slavery is wrong. If you're a Mason, you shouldn't be a slave owner. If you want to be a slave owner, you shouldn't be a Mason. This man comes back to his home roots in the deep South and tries not to convince the public, but his own brother, his own constituents, that they are wrong. And this is an abomination and we have to get rid of this. So convincing was his brother that the lodge supported him. They took out ads in all the publications of the time. They printed this article and it was signed by the worship master of that lodge. And it was a huge abolitionist movement that grew in that Danville, Kentucky area because of what this brother did and because the Masons there had a change of heart and decided that they were going to pursue this path. Uh, and it specifically says in that write-up that he wrote up that if you are proceeding this route, that you should not be a Mason, that you should, that's not what, you're not upholding the good standards of what it means to be a Mason and that it, you had to either get rid of slavery or not be a Mason. And it was, it was pretty impressive to see that. And that's, again, that's just one small story of one brother convincing his brother Masons to, in the South, to change his, their ways. And, and effectively it's uh, in, for that small moment in brief time, it, uh, it, it became a change. And later on his party would be one of the parties of several that joined together to create the Republican Party. And the Republican Party was created uh, for the sole purpose of eradicating slavery. So the smaller parties that were fighting amongst themselves joined together and they formed the Republican Party. They, they, they encouraged Abraham Lincoln to run as the first candidate for the Republican Party. And it was a little bit different than what it is now. It's kind of reversed. The Democrats were in full power and the Democrats were in favor of slavery. Democrats were for slavery. They wanted slavery. They were the ruling party here. Uh, eventually, when the Republican Party gets in, Lincoln wins. They have control of the House. And that's how they're able to effectively change the laws and pass the 13th Amendment eradicating slavery. Yeah. Now, the Republican Party were actually, when they formed, they were, that's what they're, they were based on getting rid of slavery, correct? Am I, yes. am I wrong in saying that? No, no. The Republican Party was, if you read it, it was solely created by smaller independent groups, the Free Soil Ticket, the Liberty Party Ticket, the Whigs. They were kind of fighting each other, but they were in, they were very they were a very much minority in the group. The Democrats, I believe, were like 80 to 86 percent of the ruling party was Democrats. And the Republican Party was primarily formed by several abolitionists to hire, to not hire, but to bring a candidate who would stand on the principles of eradicating slavery. Yeah. And that's when they convinced Abraham Lincoln to run. Yes. Uh, I mean, things have changed since then, yeah. but prior to contrary belief, the Democrats were in favor of slavery. They had control of the government here and the Republican party was created for that form. And the leaders, many of the leaders of these smaller parties that came together were Masons themselves, including Glipsy Bernie, whose party eventually was one of those that joined to merge to effectively come together and say, listen, we're fighting each other. Let us join together, create one new party and let 
this party go against the Democratic Party. And it act, they actually won. They actually, Lincoln became the first Republican president in the United States. And their task was to eradicate slavery. And in 1863, the Emancipation Proclamation came out, uh, officially ending slavery. However, it had to be ratified. And that was a whole different story, but it did get ratified. But uh, again, it, it was during wartime. Uh, and it had to be ratified. So you needed two thirds majority vote, which means you needed Democrats to jump over, jump ship and come on your side. So it was a, if you ever watched the movie Lincoln with Daniel Day-Lewis, yeah. it's a very informative movie and it deals primarily with how his staff, his aides and his cabinet members really worked behind the scenes during the war to get the 13th Amendment proposed, written up, ratified and passed. And it's amazing the work and the obstacles they had to overcome to get that to get that done. Gotcha. Uh, was Lincoln a Mason? No, no. As far as he we know, wasn't. no. He okay. he thought highly of Masons. Uh, he respected Masonry. He thought highly of it, but he was never a Mason. Okay. Martin Luther okay. King wasn't a Mason. He wasn't a Mason. As as much as we like to have them, uh, you know, Masons like the uh, the poster child, the uh, you know, the, the famous people. But no, he was never he was okay. never a Mason. Okay. Uh, he said Martin Luther King it, wasn't a Mason. No, he was not a Mason. Okay. Not a Mason. Okay. Some say he was made possibly after he died, but uh, those accounts have been also been false. Uh, he was never a Mason. There was rumors that upon his return from Memphis mm -hmm. in '68 that he was going to follow that path. But again, uh, whether or not that was true or not, we'll never know because he was cut short uh, yeah. at that Lorraine Hotel when he was gunned down, yeah. also by an assailant yeah. there. So, uh, we, but now his family. Were Masons, his grand, you know, his, his father, grandfather. He came from a Masonic family. Okay, and and he held. Uh, it's interesting because most of, well, I should say, all of the civil rights uh, groups, leading groups of the time, the core, the SNCC, the, the you know Martin Luther King's uh, Southern Christian Leadership Conference movement, they all had their headquarters in Masonic Grand Lodge buildings mm. in the South. So if you went to Alabama, if you went to mm. Georgia, Mississippi. It didn't matter. Their headquarters were always inside of a Grand Lodge building okay. because of the connection, the solidarity that Masonry had throughout the 200 years of, of, of issues we had in this country here, whether it was oppression, slavery, uh, segregation, civil rights. Uh, and they found haven in these temples. Mm -hmm. uh, many of the Masonic temples were used as voter registration, yeah. where you would, you would educate African-Americans on how to vote. Yeah. Uh, prepare them to vote, mm -hmm. uh, and it was uh, even the civil rights was uh, was a more a, a period where masonry was more out in the open, mm -hmm. and it wasn't kind of uh, over, you know in, in the secrecy as the underground movement. But during the civil rights period from the forties on down, it's a very uh, unique period. That's I've got I, I do have a lecture dealing with that as well, and I'm actually redoing that lecture a little bit now because of the information the enormous wealth of information that I found, uh, which is just un unbelievable how uh, the Masons uh, helped and aided directly yes. and out in public yes. uh, during that time period. Yes. Masons have been behind the scenes in a lot of things, not conspiracy-wise. I'm saying um, just period. We have been behind the scenes a great deal, haven't we? We have. We have, Brother Glenn. And I, I you know, it's sad because when you... When the average person or non-Mason turns on the television and they see all these shows on the History Channel and whatnot about Masonry, it's always it always has that conspiracy theory to it. You know, yes. 
we're ruling the world. We invented the dollar bill. We created Washington, D.C. and all these secret dark conspiracies. And it's sad because, you know, I've been a Mason 15 years. I've never I've never found any treasures. I don't have any riches. I'm, <laughs> so, I'm still waiting for mine. Um. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the, the truth is that we as Masons are sometimes our own fault because we should let the world know. And what I do is in all my lectures I do are based on historical fact. Yeah. And based on the light that masonry cast on the world instead of that darkness realm. And I think we need to talk more about what masonry has done, how it how it operated in South Africa doing apartheid. That's a beautiful story there. And most people don't know about it. Uh, and I think that the more we speak about these and we make we bring light to these issues through our times and our centuries, I think that people will gravitate to that because they they people aspire to that people have a connection with some of these movements or in history. Uh, but when you're always linked to conspiracy theories, you're linked to many other conspiracy theories, you know, uh, the, the Nazism, fascism, socialism, communism. So you, you should be, we should be breaking away from that. Well, I, I live in Bermuda, so apparently um, the last thing I saw was Masons are responsible for the Bermuda Triangle. So um, uh, <laughs> do you know anything about that? <laughs> no, no, brother. <laughs> I don't know anything about that, but uh, I mean, it's it's. I I have always been one to promote our fraternity and what it's done, bads and good, because we need to we need to recognize our faults, yeah, so we can improve ourselves and become better people in the future. I mean, I'm I'm not one for only talking about the good. Mm-hmm. I also talk about the bad we've done. Yeah, I speak about Masons who have done wrong, Masons who own slaves, Masons who kill other Masons. It's important to recognize our past, yeah. to recognize our faults mm-hmm. so we can improve on them and then move forward. Exactly. But we should be talking about what we actually do, the charities we do, the good works we do. Let the world know the beauties of ours. And believe it or not, it, masonry is an institution that allows men to come together regardless of the color of your skin, regardless of what God you profess to, regardless of your culture, your creed, your language, your tongue, and your mother country. It allows us to come together. It allows us to agree with each other. It allows us to disagree with each other. But at the end of the day, we never break that chain of union and we leave as brethren together into the world again. Exactly. And I think that exactly. that is the core value of our fraternity. Exactly. And there's no, there's absolutely proven that we take this to the world and we let the world know that, yeah, man, we can live together, yeah. regardless where we come from. Yes. Big, small, thin, heavy, different colors. We can live together. We can learn to live together. We can learn to agree and disagree and live as men and accept each other as men, accept our faults, but move on together, keeping that, that bond and never breaking it. And I think the world today, not just here in America, but around the world, needs that message of hope and inspiration and brotherhood that men can learn to live each other with each other and, and, and spend time with each other uh, without butchering one another. And I think that's the most important message that we have to give to the world. Uh, I always end my lectures with a little quote in here in New Jersey, as in many jurisdictions, the master will give a closing charge and he will say towards the end, every human being has a claim upon your kind offices. Do good unto all, especially those of the household of faith. Now, why would the martial worshipful master of a lodge the right worshipful master of a lodge, at the very end, charge his brethren to take what goes happens here in the lodge and take it to the world. 
Take this good that happens here and take it to the world. Every human being has a claim on what we do here. And I believe that's the intention of what masonry really is. To show the world that we can meet together, that we can have differences and come from different backgrounds and believe in different gods. But it doesn't matter. It allows the peasant and the noble to meet together, the beggar and the, and the, and the rich and the poor to come together. At the end of the funeral rite, when you give the brother his last funeral rites, he said the, the staff of the beggar and the scepter of the king will be laid side by side because it's telling the world that it doesn't matter what status you have. It doesn't matter what you've achieved in life. At the end, we're still equal. We're still meeting on the level and we still have to respect each other as one, regardless of what our outside world is. And that's a great, powerful message that we should be sending to the world, that if it can happen within our doors, why shouldn't it happen to the world? And I think the master, when he closes that lodge, is effectively telling us, don't keep what happens here, all this good here. Share it with the world. Let the world know that it can happen and that it can work. And I think Masons have been sharing and expounding upon these, uh, on this message throughout the centuries. And I think that's what we should be focused on. That's what we should be telling the people and, and, and speaking of ourselves and then proving it by the history that we have where Masons put themselves in harm's way, many of them giving up their lives in the cause of others' happiness or others' oppressions or others' freedoms and independences. And I think that's, that's very important. It's, it's a very important, powerful message that we need to get out. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Now, Brother Moo, what I haven't asked you is, what lodge are you a member of? I'm a member of Atlas Pythagoras Lodge, number 10, here in Westfield, New Jersey. And I'm also a member of Lodge St. George, number 200, there in Bermuda, myself. That is my mother, Scottish Constitution Lodge. I'm very proud of it. Yes, sir. I'm very proud to have been there. I'm very proud to have sat in session there. And I'm very proud that I've spoken for the brethren there as well. So that is, uh, I don't belong to any other lodges other than honorary memberships. But there's only two paying lodges I do. And one is to my fellow lodge here in New Jersey, which was my mother lodge where I was raised, and my fellow constituents in the great island and country of Bermuda down in St. George's. And I love that, and I will never join any other lodge except these two. <laughs> and there you have it, folks. Brother Moses, thank you very much for joining me on my podcast today. Um, it's been a great pleasure. Um, thank you. Because like I said last time, through my technical problems, I had actually forgot to record Brother Moses. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so please forgive me for that. <laughs> uh, no need to forgive my brother. That's what we're here for. <laughs> and um, I look forward um, when you return to Bermuda. Absolutely. But I know the pandemic has kept me away for a little bit until we get uh, past this epic. But uh, I do look forward to rejoining my brethren there and sitting in fellowship with my brethren. Just sitting in Lodge, enjoying the fellowship is what I look forward to. And I look forward to sharing some fellowship with you, my dear brother Glenn. Thank you for the opportunity to present and speak here. And I hope that your constituents and your followers enjoy it. Uh, and again, I'm here to serve the craft of masonry in any capacity that I can. Thank you very much, sir. And on that note, thank you for tuning in to the Funk E-Vibes podcast.